It's the quotidian. It's episode five with Noor Hall. Welcome back to The Quotidian. I'm Bradley Dennis. Noor Hall is a legend in the depth and archetypal psychology world. She's a writer and researcher whose books include The Moon and the Virgin, Images of the Archetypal Feminine, These Women, and Irons in the Fire. She was a psychotherapist in private practice and is a theater collaborator who has worked with Pan Theater's Myth and Theater Festivals in Paris and most recently with the Archipelago Theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I had the distinct privilege of helping bring some of her writings to life in the film North, a love letter, directed by her longtime collaborator, Ellen Hemphill. Noor lives with her family in the Twin Cities and on Bailey Island, Maine. We spoke about her ideas around creativity in and out of the pandemic, about her earliest creative inspirations, and about the biological mysteries of women's aging. The Quotidian is produced by Carolina Commons, whose mission it is to foster the creative energies and collaborative conversations in everyday people from all walks of life. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. And now, please enjoy the depth and the resourceful mind of Noor Hall. Well, Noor, welcome to my little corner of the internet. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. How how are you in general? This has been a crazy time for a lot of folks. So I've just been kind of starting with an, a general inquiry because this is such a unique moment in our most of our lives. How are you? How are you yeah, weathering things? It, I'm right now. I, things are quite good. Um, the two years were very bizarre and mm-hmm. full of major changes for me as for everybody. Um, but the uptick that's happening now, especially with regard to performance and happening again, like at the Walker Art Center and and our own um, piece that you were involved in, mm-hmm. uh, being able to show that to people and ha- gathering in groups and having conversations and sharing enthusiasms in person and <laughs> feeling the intimacy of that sort of thing is really lifted my spirits and I've yeah. enjoyed that quite a bit. And, and I mean, things are still strange so that I find myself missing appointments or not, not schedule or not getting <laughs> to things I scheduled because my mind isn't working that way yet again. So yeah, yeah it's disorienting, but feels better. And um, I know, I, I think this is true. You're still a, a working um, psychiatrist. Is that correct? 
You still no, seeing I'm not, clients? I'm oh, okay. not a psychiatrist, uh, but I'm I'm sort of a psychoanalytically oriented archetypal psychologist. <laughs> so okay. is psychologist what I would say. But um, yeah, um, uh, no, I had I retired that practice about eight years ago, except for a few people that I see at my home in my home library now. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally not, not, not doing that work a- anymore, but mm-hmm. continuing other kinds of project based work that allows me, that worked really well during the pandemic too, just allowing me to be in connection with people that are collaborators and, uh, writing bits when I needed to, and that, that sort yeah. of thing. I imagine this was a, a really nice, almost like a forced hermitage for, for writing. You know, it wasn't oddly. I, I, hmm. I expected it to be, and I think it was for some people, the number of 800 page novels that came out in the last five months <laughs> is just incredible. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I got through half of one of them, the love songs of W.E be Du Bois, which was amazing, mm-hmm. but I didn't quite finish the whole thing. I read parts of Richard Powers' Bewilderment, and there were others. I mean, it, some people were really capable of doing that, but I I thought, I, I have a major project I've been working on called The Ancestry of Friendship for about, 15, um, since 2015, and I thought, mm. fantastic, I'm going to be able to just do nothing but work on this for two years, and a year. Now, when I first thought that, we thought, oh, it might last a year, but yeah. then it lasted two years. But that particular kind of focused creativity did not happen. And um, a lot of my friends, I've talked about it with a lot of friends who are artists, and there's this kind of stress uh, that didn't permit following through. Like it was hard to finish sentences because yeah. you never knew what was going to happen. I mean, and anyway, surprise. Surprised, surprised myself because I thought I'd get a lot more done. So, yeah. Um, well, let's let's dive into that a little bit, um, just to kind of get into the idea of creativity. And I, I'm actually very curious, since we're on the subject, what you know, you can't force creativity. It's something the conditions have to sort of be right. And and yet, mm-hmm. you would think. Um, because artists tend to be, this is certainly not a universal truth, but they tend to be fairly introverted, fairly open personality types that, mm-hmm. th- that those conditions, and I mean, obviously some people really did thrive, like you were saying, but for those who didn't, and I, it almost seems like that was more the norm than, than the exception. Why, what yeah. do you think it was about that? Was it just the stress of it? that prevented people um, from really digging in? It was, a, it was a very particular kind of stress. I mean, many artists require time to experience ambiguity, I think. Uh, I, I, I like to be very open-ended in things that I'm working on, not knowing mm. where they're going to go. Um, but this was different because of the intrusion of potential life and death matters, not only for yourself, but for your family and loved ones and everybody you knew. So that um, attention became so fragmented and the 
sort of the ambiguity became overwhelming. So it was no longer a friend of the process. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and sort of made, made me retreat into things that were more hands-on kind of work or sorting papers, working on my archives, um, things that maybe I'd been putting off actually when I was being more creative in another way. Yeah. You know, so that it seems like a lot of sourdough bread recipes got perfected. Exactly. I made a lot of soup, you know, froze it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Filled the freezer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, most recently you and I were involved in uh, the Archipelago Theater's production of North. Hopefully by the time that this episode airs, Ellen Hempel and Archipelago Theater will have made the the full film available on their website. Um, but that's an example, at least in my recent past, where it seemed like there was a sort of a foment under the surface that finally after, you know, a year, 18 months of the pandemic, things were really starting to bubble up. And like you were saying before, we're either we're getting used to it or things are opening up to the point where there's this kind of erupting forth of that. And I'm really curious because a lot of the work that we did on that production involves your writing and your creative process. Can you talk a little bit about how it was to sort of make that transition? From, from working on words to the, to the coming together of the piece in action, sort of? I think that, but also the, the sort of stultification of the creative process through the pandemic that you were describing and kind of freeing yourself from the ice flow of that and getting, getting back into, into that process and collaborative work. Yeah. Well, it was, it was very, very different. Mm-hmm. For me, than for the movers and shakers, so to speak, on the screen, because I was really working with words, and that meant, and the words of others. You know, it wasn't that I was writing. I didn't write in this one the way I have in other archipelago pieces. I was really uh, a reader and a collector of poetry, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in some prose, but because Ellen and I were talking about the ideas for a couple of years, we, and reading, we, both of us had big stacks of books about extinction and migration and, um, climate and, um, embodiment and, uh, aging, all kinds Mm -hmm. of issues that the, that were coming up for us in the original North question, which was how do you orient yourself? What is your true North? And that, that was the first question three years ago. Um, So what happened is during the pandemic, I was sitting with that stack of books and in fits and starts, I would just come up with quotes, things that I thought were pertinent to the kinds of questions we were asking and the kinds of questions or feelings we hoped that eventual um, audiences would come up with uh, when the piece came to fruition. So I I could just 
it was that was yeah. a very helpful project during the pandemic. And then, um, yeah, and one, once it started into the um, to the dance part, the choreography and the direction that Ellen took and and uh, that Jim was working on, I I was more sort of in that role of responding to what might be needed. Oh my gosh, we've got to have something more on refugee animals. Mm-hmm. You know, where 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 could we find that? So you've been involved in theater and the theatrical collaborative process for some time. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the difference for you in between the collaborative work that theater requires and your own solo creative process and how those maybe um, mesh and uh, and diverge mm-hmm. as they will. Yeah. I, they're hugely different for me. And, and, and the first... Um, 12, 15, 20 years of my writing life was extremely introverted. And um, when I wrote books, I went into kind of an antisocial period so that I didn't see my husband. I, 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 have, I had one child and she... Um, went back and forth from living at her father's house to my house. I mean, every week it was incredible. And she's in very good shape now, but that was, mm-hmm. that was an interesting, tough time. Um, and I, but I had four, three or four days a week when I was single alone in my house. And I, I consolidated all of my writing time into those days. And then after I had to, then the other days I would go to work as a therapist and a teacher and then, um, and not do any writing at all. And then, so I, I had a kind of schedule. Well, it sounds like a double life. It was a double life, but it, it was, it provided, um, a dedicated mm-hmm. schedule for that kind of writing, which is curious. Nothing I ever could have planned or would have planned, but that's what ended up happening. So, um, that's how my second book, that's how Those Women was written. But The Moon and the Virgin was very different, my first book, because I, I was out of graduate school. I was living with somebody. Um, but um, I could ignore weekends, days of the week, didn't matter. I did some teaching in those days and a little bit of therapy, but I was really writing. I could write intensely for days at a time. And um, I was fortunate to be married at that mm. time to my first husband who had been a Marine. And uh, he had a GI bill that permitted him to buy any books oh, wow. he wanted and charge them to the government. And we had the extraordinary library, the entire Bollingen collection and of poetry and psychology and um, literature, ancient of the ancient Near East, for example, or the whole collected works of Thoreau. It was just, it was wonderful. So I really... It's the best example of military spending I've ever heard of. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of crazy, I know.
attribute a lot of my ability to cocoon um, in order to get creative mm. work done to having that library at home. It was terrific. And that was long before there was Google or internet or yeah. you know ways of accessing things electronically. So that was one kind of, and I also lived in a place where I got up every morning and made wood burning fires because we heated with a wood stove and that kind of thing. So it was, that was a very interesting, each of the books I've written have been written and that, I'm just, that's true for everybody, I'm mm -hmm. sure, but in very different, different periods of my life, you know, but um, then once I had a child, it was having to work around that, um, change things quite a bit. And that, that was true. And, that, and as I started to say before, I cut off social life pretty much and um, really was had a way of being having an inner orientation in order to facilitate the writing. But um, that was very different than collaboration, which didn't come until, I guess, about 20 years ago now when I had first had that experience of, um, I was at a myth and theater event mm -hmm. in France that was put on by Pan Theater, the Pan Theater group every other year. And someone from North Carolina who was in Archipelago Theater Pieces attended as a student in the voice and movement workshops. And she asked me if I'd be willing to have a conversation with Ellen who had read my book, Those Women. Yeah. And that's, how our working together started and and in that case i'd already written a book so there was we had a lot to go a, a lot mm -hmm. to work with to create that first piece we did together um but but you know to be a writer for someone else who's a director it's a completely different it was a completely different experience for me to 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 hand words hand these images i'd created over to somebody else and trust their use of the material and trust it, it was that kind of collaboration yeah. it wasn't that we were crafting sentences together you know yeah there are lots of different kinds of collaborations of course and that that one was that was great and and i at that time i really enjoyed the fact that it was ultimately her responsibility, even though I carried this undercurrent of inspiration mm -hmm. and material, you know, very, it was fascinating. And the first time, first time we produced, I was part of the producing of, of a play like that. I was just knocked out by the fact that you would work and work and work. And then there'd be this final eruptive yeah. blossoming of something so extraordinary and then it would disappear which as a writer of books i i didn't i had didn't have a clue <laughs> that that was going to happen you know it's very that your very baby different. would live for a very short time and then disappear yeah. into the ether yeah there'd be this tremendous enthusiasm and welcoming and then gone mm -hmm. yeah very different so i i been fascinated by that process ever since. It's funny because I was just I'm I'm putting together a presentation comparing uh, the theatrical environment and the creative theatrical creative process as an example of an alchemical vessel, and this idea that there's there's a few different kinds of 
alchemical vessels. Oh, There's yeah. the crucible, which is sort of an open. Yeah. Well, there, it's funny because there's going to ask what kind of vessel, roughly speaking, three different kinds. There's sort of the open crucible. There's a hermetically sealed retort. And then there's the still, right? Which, which that separatio process. Right. And it, it, mm-hmm. as I was looking at the retort, mm-hmm. that sort of hermetically sealed thing, that was the only example of a sort of an alchemical vessel that did not seem to equate to the theatrical process that more I think Hillman actually described glass as a separating. Uh, huh. It gives the illusion of of um, of community, but uh, that it actually separates you from the event. And so I was thinking more like film or television would be more of an example of of that kind of thing. But that in in the theatrical process, you have this this crucible where you're separating out the mundane from the sacred or from this sort of uh, hyper stylized, contextualized, ritualized space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same with the still where you're applying the heat of attention and, um, intention and, and, and distilling something down to its essence, that human experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I, one of the, um, one of the books that I wrote was called irons in the fire. And it's, it's about, Iron. It's about working with mm-hmm. iron, iron, cast iron art, pr- particularly. Um, so I spent a long time comparing that process to, um, well, what what happens just in the creation of art, is also what happens in the journey of the psyche, um, because there are so many metaphors and images in that in that particular kind of a, either in the furnace or also that's one form or else wrought iron when you're comparing it with what happens mm-hmm. with the fire and the anvil and the hammer and the tongs and the, all that. But um, no, I think that's a great idea thinking about that in connection with theater. The, um, the second play mm-hmm. that I did with Alan was eulogy for a warrior. And when we were working on that, I had a dream about um meeting another inspiring analyst who was inspiring to me in the process of going through a revolving glass door. And that was really interesting because we could see each other's name tags and read names. And it felt like there was some kind of communication. But I remember also when Hillman was talking about that and, and there was something about how, um, it's like a thought can pass through, but right. no feel, feeling doesn't pass through glass. And um, so there's that particular kind of yeah. separation, even though you can see through it and in some ways send a message through it, but you can't feel through it. Yeah. That's interesting. In in kind of starting to get into sort of the depth psychological and archetypal psychological lexicon here. I don't know how many of uh, the listeners to the show share that Mm. context. Could you talk a little bit about creativity from a depth psychological perspective, maybe even give your definition of of what depth psychology is and how it's maybe different from what people might normally think of as Mm -hmm. psychology or Freudian psychology? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I've always 
thought of the particular kinds of depths that's involved in depth psychology as reaching into a level beneath the surface of everyday life, but through the implements of everyday life. I mean, the way things around us show up in our dreams mm-hmm. and in our conversations and all that. But um, rather than, for example, I'm better at giving an example than I am at definitions. Um, when I would have someone come in to start working with me and they would begin to tell me, for example, that what, what, um, they thought mm-hmm. was their presenting issue or something, I would of course listen, but then ask that for their patience in, in, um, accepting the fact that I was not going to immediately follow their, uh, issue, like the issue being, um, wanting to divorce their husband or something. Um, but what I would rather do is hear a dream and the dream would in my mind and experience it inevitably lead to the place in the depths of their own psyche that needed attention. Um, that was underneath the issue that certainly would come out in the question of divorce and all that. But, but, in their minds, right. they've gone over the question of divorce a million times constantly. But this other way brings you at what's happening mm-hmm. in your life from a particularly different angle. Oh, it's a different angle. And I feel like that's the genius of depth psychology is that it it comes from that underlying experience, mm-hmm. a place that underlies all of our experiences Um so there's that. Um, there's also in-depth psychology an awareness of, um, I guess, what we'd call the archetypal dimension of human experience that is collective and shared and comes out in myths and dreams and fairy tales and, and in systems of knowledge like alchemy, mm-hmm. as you were mentioning, or Gnosticism <clears throat> or something like that. Um, and um, that 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 the ability to fall back on the resources of knowledge and experience and wisdom offered by um, that level of human understanding is really an essential part of what goes on in in that kind of uh, work, and it is really uh, dependent or essentially connected to images in our that are part of our lives and literature and um, dreams and um, not just ideas, you know, not just theories, but experienced uh, embodied experiences. And can you talk a little bit about what creativity is uh, from a depth psychological perspective? If, is that too broad a question? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard one for me to answer, but I can tell you about my first experience of creative thinking, which I think is relevant. Yeah. It's so, actually one of the questions that I had written down was about your earliest oh, creative impulses. 
So we can oh, go there too. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the first one that I was con- really conscious of was I was 16 years old and maybe almost 17 and went into the public library in New Jersey where I lived. And I was having to write a paper for some kind of some class in school. And I was interested in mythology, but I didn't really know much about it. And I found just by chance, the huge volume of Eric mm-hmm. Neumann's on the, uh, the great mother it's called. And, um, and it was, um, it has beautiful illustrations in it or images, examples of Paleolithic art, for example, and medieval sculpture and uh, art from many, many eras and styles of art. And um, he has diagrams and he's yeah. explaining the good and evil. <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was a, uh, it's a really mind-opening book for me at that moment, and and it introduced me for the first time to the idea of um, the the um, conjunction of opposites in the symbol mm-hmm. in the yin yang symbol of the, the yin yang symbol, and I had this idea as I was going through this book that that creation, the world, the creation of the world came from. And everything came from the harmonious union of opposites. And I, to this day, don't know whether that was a phrase that Neumann actually used or if it's, but it's what I ended up writing as my thesis on the myths of creation. And um, and my father was outside that day mm. when this thought came to me, tarring the roof. And I climbed mm. out the window I was, ex- I was in an altered state. I was very excited about having this discovery, and I told him that I had had this great idea, and that I now understood not only where the world came from, but where I came from, because my parents wow. are about as opposite as you could get. And I, and I told him that I understood now that I came from this harmonious union of opposites, <laughs> and. and um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds so kind of goofy now, but it, it was it was it was an amazing experience, and I wrote I wrote a paper on it, and with footnotes mm-hmm. and everything I needed to do for my teacher, and um, and I still remember it. I remember the feeling. I remember the revelation, and um, so th- that that has something to do. There's some kind of breakthrough that happens in in cre- in the creative moments. Uh, where things that didn't used to go together are are suddenly suddenly um, there's some kind of merging and um, explosion of it, it's mm-hmm. there's some kind of epiphany I think in in those in those moments and um, I feel very fortunate that I was allowed to or encouraged to think in boundary crossing ways like that as a child and in my home.
It's interesting that you mentioned boundary crossing because one question that occurred to me, especially in thinking archetypally um, in, in sort of traditional depth psychology and archetypal psychology and in, in language like union of the opposites, there's a very clarifying binary. Mm-hmm. And especially now, there's so much thought and process around the spectrum of between the opposites, yes. this sort mm-hmm. of non-binary thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a member of uh, my cohort just submitted a 40-page paper about creating a non-binary lexicon for the animus and anima, the sort of archetypal- oh, Great. Counter countersexual opposites in, in Jungian psychology. Yeah. And I was really wrestling with that because, you know, as you say, and I think rightly so, that the the world is created from this union of opposites, from, you know, and that, that we live in these stark archetypal realities of darkness and light and you know hot and cold. Uh, up and down, male, female, where, and especially for you, um, you know, who's worked to reestablish women in the feminine so centrally into the cultural consciousness and, and into mythopoesis, how does that, that new impulse inform this work in your mind? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I think that when I was younger, I was more fascinated and the world was more fascinated with those opposites, Mm -hmm. which I would call the Aristotelian opposites that, um, that maintain their distinction. But maybe now, you know, the fact that the yin yang symbol, they each, there's a seed of the opposite in each Mm -hmm. one. So there's the black seed and the white side and the white that, and I, I think about when they spin and how how the black and the white turn into gray and all, all, all the different possibilities. Um, I, th- I think that the um, I mean since I as I matured in my thinking and my working, I really grew farther from that the dualistic thinking or images mm-hmm. that were based on that kind of dualism and found the, you know, that, that, the, there was the a kind of fertilization that happened in a way that, that diluted those or eliminated those boundaries. Um, and when, um, I got finally one of the dreams of my life mm, was yeah. to be able to go to Aronos Institute in Switzerland. And I did, not not in the original Aronos, but I was invited to the reincarnation of Aronos and gave a paper called Border Skirmishes that was on gender um, and the sort of the merging mm-hmm. of what we used to call the opposites. And um, yeah, and so the feminine, the idea of the feminine, even in, even when I wrote about it in the in the eighties, it was in my mind, uh, qualities that had had a roving home and weren't specific to a woman. But um, 
now I think I think language the language for all of these um, for this discussion is really really changing, and I feel like I'm I'm uh, very mm -hmm. happily in a listening mode uh, with regard to finding new new ways to say it. Um, thinking, for example, of what's happening in your alchemical retort and the birth of the homunculus, you know, is it, is it, yeah. it used to be a little baby boy, but mm -hmm. who is it now? Baby, well, there's a hermaphrodite in <laughs> I there too, know. I think, or at least that that's, yeah. that, that's the conjunctio. That yeah, that's a hermaphrodite, joining. that's right. There you go. So maybe, maybe, mm -hmm. yeah, back. Back to the future. <laughs> I'm back yeah. to this this term of uh, mythopoesis. You've yeah. been kind of described as a mythopoetic writer. Can you talk a little bit ab about that? What mean about mm -hmm. what that means, and mm -hmm. especially in this moment, why why the creation of of mm -hmm. myth is so mm -hmm. important? Um. Yeah, I think of of um, myth and being related to muthos and mouth and and what gets spoken, what what gets spoken that is um, some kind mm -hmm. of truth based on a lived story, um, and um, the poesis part of it means making or moving about like the feet in poetry is related to the feet of the bard walking across the field. Um, so it's, it's sort of um, myth mm -hmm. in beautiful action. <laughs> um, and I think, and um, yeah, it, it, I know it's not a word that's, in common parlance so much, but I think it's, I think it beautifully captures something that, that, um, is in process all the time. And I like that about the word. Um, I always, I always use mythology. It used to be primarily the mythology that formed the canon that I learned when I was in college, so it was more Western, but mythologies from all over the world have been increasingly important. And um, I've been working, one of the projects I've been working on lately is called Dangerous Women, that is um, uh, a, a show that a friend of mine who's a curator is working on in California. And um, I've been fascinated the way uh, about the way that contemporary, the production of contemporary art, uh, many examples of women from all over the world, Latin America, China, Asia, um, uh, everywhere, Eastern Europe, European countries, how, how there is an archetypal dimension to what they're creating, even though mm -hmm. their voices are so totally current and related to political issues in their own countries, for example. But um, if you've 
if you've spent if you've spent many years looking at the kinds of things that you're looking at now in in that that archetypal studies area, you start to see um, the visual echoes and even verbal echo echoes things that sound similar that um, yeah that are. There's some encouragement. I mean, I could see why, as I say that, I'm thinking, okay, so why is that encouraging? But to me, it gives me heart that um, rather than being right. depressing, don't do, do things never change? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, could go could go either way. But um, but no, it gives you it gives it gives your own sense of the issues you're working on a feeling of substance um, that the roots are so deep and. Um, and and the confidence that if you find the right way of talking about it with other people, mm-hmm. they'll always know what you mean. That that has something to do with maybe the commonality. There's, yeah. I, I've often played this thought experiment out regarding archetypes in human consciousness. That how far forward in the future would the species need to be, or to get in order to create a new archetype or set of archetypes, mm. especially given the questions of space travel and possibly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Colonia- uh, colonizing other planets, that s- suddenly when you begin to introduce right. a, a completely right. new yeah. paradigm in terms of environment, that perhaps that's really what it takes, that, that here on this planet there is such a commonality of basic human experience that those archetypes are universally shared. But somewhere in the future, what would those archetypes look like? What would they be? You know, when we encounter an animal with six legs and two heads, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Well, yeah. Well, even now, I mean, evolution is just speeding up. It's, it's very curious. So that those, that, um, um, phenomenon now of, of sea creatures that are so far below the surface, um, hanging out around the places where there are deep, deep springs that come up from more from the interior of the earth. And there's a, some kind of a snail that has now incorporated into its body plastic, um, plastic like a plastic shield that looks like a little tutu that comes out around their body above that little pod, that foot thing that sticks out. But anyway, it's like being able, the animals evolving are incorporating bits of the environment into them and becoming creatures that have never existed before. Um, And human beings developing that extra bone in their neck oh, no. that's already starting from looking down <laughs> at our cell phones. Is that really like, a thing? People... Unbelievable. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's never happened this fast. Yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 So the speed, it, the speed of it all is, is, is extraordinary. Um, but I, I, I like your thinking, trying to think about that, you know, because it seems to me that there always will be something re- retained that that gets transformed nonetheless in the process of adapting to whatever's next um.
it's fascinating to be, and I, I know some of your writing with Ellen in in North covered a little bit of the speed at which things are changing, certainly the environment. Um, mm-hmm. Our our process and certainly our access to information has changed how we think right. and how we behave. Has Have you felt that change your process either just internally or creatively or personally in any meaningful, significant way? Oh, I, I think there is a, a lot to discuss about how technology and the rapidity of communication has affected my um, relationships with people and in many positive ways with regard to the sharing of work and ideas. But um, uh, I also feel the overwhelm that many of us do with uh, too much to having, uh, having to Mm -hmm. handle too much and being diverted by that and slowed down by it. Um, And it's been a little bit hard to tell in, in the pandemic times, whether, the things I have difficulty doing now are related to changes in the pandemic, the overwhelm of technology or aging. Hmm. And I don't, I don't really know how to answer it. I, I mean, it's something I want to talk about, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's interesting to, to find myself on the, on the edge of things that I, form formerly yeah. understood well and that there's that um yeah yeah i i'm trying to remember the name of the um futurist who came up with the idea of the singularity and that the name is escaping me um kurtzweil ray kurtzweil the idea that oh. that mm-hmm. there's almost like an evolution of technology to the point where it's it's changing itself that we're rapidly i mean especially with ai getting closer and closer to that moment but also the necessity for um, our our ability to wrestle our attention and to to meter it and to to attend (laughs) to our attention and that that's such a especially with young people. Mm-hmm, I've talked about mm-hmm. this a number of times with folks on the show about sort of the, the epidemic of, of attention loss, um, certainly economies that are extracting and mining our attention. Um, and that that seems like a, a real, hmm. a point that, that mythopoesis could really assist to sort of help gather and that we've, we've really lost touch in a, in an overarching cultural way with sustaining myths. Um, I don't want to get too far into sort of the Nietzschean <laughs> death of God yeah. or anything like that, but well, it's <laughs> that the new, the new myths that are coming up really seem to be these hydras of, of technology and, and the ability to do multiple things at once. What's your your take on that, or do you see anything, mm. any parallels there? 
I had an idea, and then you said the, something about the multiple-headed hydra, and I got all mixed up because I suddenly was thinking about that creature. <laughs> the image took over. Oh, I know. I was thinking that um, one of the things that I really liked about North, the film, uh, is which you, you might not have experienced because you were moving with such intensity mm. through it, I mean, in your in your role as a mover actor. Um, but as a watcher, because of the absence of dialogue and um, because of the pacing set by music and the editing, I felt like there was a lot of space to be in nature. I mean, it's somehow time expanded into space to allow a lot of time for paying attention, mm-hmm. even though it was a 45 minute film, you know, but each, each section had so much grass or so much sky or so many leaves and, um, and quiet in one sense, because you weren't being bombarded with um, messages that were, you know, being typed and mm-hmm. all that. So you got to really be present to what was happening. And there was something very wonderful about that. Um, and there were words, but they tended to be on the edges of mm-hmm. the action. And um, there was just a lot of, so there was, then I think that's a rare experience these days, unless you're out hiking, you know, I mean, if you're intentionally deliberately mm-hmm. in nature. Yeah, you know, but. to kind of bring it back to the theatrical, the the only real analog that I can think of is is something like the dance work of Pina Bausch, where she works so hard to bring the natural world into the theater, and so that you the the mm-hmm. the spectator is present with and confronted by the enormity of, you know, the boulders on stage or the the dirt and the mud or the the grass. And then it it just it brings Yeah. Because you can yes, smell yeah, those there's things. There's a hyper too. Uh, visceral mm-hmm. viscerality mm-hmm. to to the experience that I, I think Ellen mm-hmm. and Jim in in the film really were able to to bring out even though there is that yeah. back to that sort of Hillman-esque yeah. separation via the glass, you know, you can see your psyche taking the shape of it, but you're not interacting with it. You're just, it's, it's already fixed. The, the alchemy has happened and now it's affecting mm-hmm. you. And then you get to observe how it affects you in your own vessel. Mm-hmm. 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 So we're, uh, we're getting to the end yeah. of our hour and I wanted to, to pop my my last question yeah. for you. Before I do that, is there anything that's really inspiring you right now, either music or literature um, or any anything in particular? No, I guess I wouldn't say in, in that. Um, I don't think I have an answer to the way you're asking it. I, I think I'm inspired more than ever now by relationships with other mm-hmm. artists rather than by a particular product um, or creation. You know, I feel really fortunate to live where I do in the Twin Cities and um, 
have great friendships and a lot going on culturally and mm -hmm. artistically. And um, even though it's <laughs> coming out of the pandemic, but yeah. So well, that's wonderful. I think yeah. I, I hope for more of that. I think a lot of folks as things open back up, so that yeah. seems it's a real flowering mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. People re imagining mm -hmm. and figuring out how to be with one another and kind of by extension themselves in new ways. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Actually, I will give you one example though. Now that I answered it that way, I've just started reading Siri Hustvet's um, essays called mothers, fathers and others. And she has, she is so brilliant. You know, she's the wife of Paul Auster. And a lot of people would say to her, well, or thinking things were his ideas or something, but he, he always says she's the one who's the intellectual. And, um, and I, I really like these essays because they are so intellectual, but they're completely based in her life experience. And she has a way of doing that, that I think really inspires me. And um, I, th I think maybe things are going to be better off if people can start relating their intellectual work to to living. Yeah. That's really the work, <laughs> you know? isn't it? What so, does it have to mm -hmm. do with, with us now yeah. here? Mm -hmm. Can you repeat that author's name in the book title again? Yeah. Yeah. Siri, S-I-R-I, familiar, Hustvet, H-U-S-T-V-E-D-T. She's an essayist and a novelist. Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. And the book is Mothers, Fathers, and Others. Mm -hmm. So my final question for you, Noor, is what's the question that's not being asked right now? Mm. Well, I think it is. I think it is being asked, but it but is not being asked very loudly, and that is how we we who um, consider ourselves thoughtful and progressive and reflective <clears throat> are um, complicit in the, um, in the potential loss of democracy uh, and, and, um, and our planet. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's a huge question. It's so, easy when we live in our bubbles uh, to do the thinking we're doing but not uh, and the complaining <laughs> but not understand and I'm not saying I do but not understanding our, our part in it all it's funny it sounds to me it I'm reminded of Prometheus's gift of fire when I think of technology that this this thing which is mm -hmm. so powerful and would all would and enables us to communicate in in ways that were unthinkable 50 years ago certainly 100 200 years ago and and give us just this immeasurable amount of power and ability to work together but at the same time is capable of distracting us and pulling us away from the essential like you were talking about before 
you know, we have this intellectual capacity, but mm-hmm. if it's not being used to address these deep issues, what it can only be hindering mm-hmm. the process or so that it ultimately it needs to be turned back into a tool as opposed to pulling us backwards or distracting distracting us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. food for thought I I am um, there there is this is and I know I'm not responding exactly to what you said but what you were saying made me think of it the question um, about what's not being asked what, what I want to know and I think it is a really important question is why why do women live so long why do women outlive men I mean, why what is the function and how is it related to the feminine mm. for me I mean that's what I'm wondering about but so far in the history of our planet I think women there must there's got to be some really important function <laughs> that women are serving um, it, it, because of this outliving of men that women just seem mm-hmm. to go on and on and um, what is that about I do think yeah. you know so. our society really values the maiden and the mother maybe to a lesser extent, but that the crone aspect, that archetype is, and and the elderly in general in our culture and death get subsumed, pushed away. Mm-hmm. And so hearing you, not to mm-hmm. offer an answer, but it, that's what it makes me think of is that that's the role that's mm-hmm. that kind of archetypally mm-hmm. serves itself up there. Yeah, it's got Absolutely. a big task. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like we could we could talk a lot longer about this, but I want to respect your time and also our listeners. And Nor, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and being here, and also for the work that you do. It's um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. We breathe, we eat, we sleep, and we dream, we love, we cry, we fight, we make up, and we play. Play lets us discover new parts of ourselves. In play, we expand our potential, we feel safe, we trust. In that safety and trust, we experiment with what we can imagine. Better art, better us, a better world for ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities. Our shared humanity, a common good, That's what Carolina Commons does. We take the world away for a while to give people the chance to see new perspectives, to listen to new voices from others and from our own internal worlds before rejoining and participating in the world renewed. 
We help people, teams, and communities connect to their inherent creative voice and to re-envision the world. With new skills, new voices, and new visions, we can help one another create a better future. Visit www.carolinacommons.org to learn more about how you can take your imagination, innovation, and problem-solving to the next level. Carolina Commons. Uncommon creativity for all.